Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. My guest in this episode is Lorian Archer. We are talking about the importance of inclusion and equity during our design and development process for medical devices. We discuss this topic in the context of pulse oximeters. These medical devices are used to measure the blood oxygen level and they were failing in the field during the COVID years on African-American patients because of the pigmentation in their skin. When we think about a diverse population that will use our medical devices early in our design and development process, we include the design requirements to meet those requirements. This is a very important topic that often gets overlooked. Lorian and I talked about this topic in front of a live audience as part of our LinkedIn live audio series. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So with that, uh, welcome to all of you. And Lorian, I'm so excited to welcome you today. Thank you for joining. I know you just came back from a, from a long trip. Uh, I, I can't wait to hear about that. So please uh, introduce yourself to the audience and let's get going with this. Thank you so much, Naveen. Um, I feel honored to be part of this uh, this talk that you have, and um, we're always continuing much success in um, you know in your pursuits here. Yeah, I just got back from Cornell University last week, where I was a, a keynote speaker. I also did some workshops with the students um, because I collaborated with the Cornell Biomedical Device Team. They're a team of um, you know, bioengineering and biomedical engineers that have that are part of a, a CUBMD project device team, mm-hmm. and they've actually developed uh, a pulse oximeter mm-hmm. called Melanoxy. Mm-hmm. And it, it just so happened that um, you know I've been wanting to write this white paper for a while, and I actually sponsored them. And just so happened that they were developing this, and I was like, hey. Let me just use this as a case study in the paper. Mm-hmm. And then they took it a step further and said, well, why don't we um, be contributors or co-authors with you of the paper? And it really, what an amazing experience that has been. And and I hope that everyone here will get a chance to um, read the full. We just released it yesterday morning. Sure thing, so. yeah. <laughs> and in this white paper, you are talking about this topic of equity in design controls, right? And tell us, tell yeah. us what that is and why it is important. Yeah. So last year, uh, when I was I was working at at Google, um, I had already implemented the quality management system there. Got them thirteen four eighty five certified. Um, then moved on to you know established global policy. Someone had posted a, uh, a an article on LinkedIn about faulty pulse oximeters during COVID mm-hmm. that misdiagnosed people's oxygen levels during COVID. Mm-hmm. And it really, it, I had no idea about biased devices up until last year. And I, and I, and it made me feel bad because Hey, I'm a I'm I'm an African American female, right? Mm-hmm. I and I've been in the device industry 
for over 25 years and I have been on design teams and why did it even never occur to me to think about or consider people of different, um, you know, uh, 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 race, like bas- basically considering the demographics of the, of the people that we're going to launch the product to. And also during COVID, I was in, I lived in New York and Long Island and I had um, family that lived in Queens that was the worst place where a lot of people were just, they were dying, you know, of this horrific disease. And it, and it made me think, all they had to do when they developed the oximeter was just consider skin tone requirements and, and make sure the oximeter was recalibrated to read all different uh, skin tones. And mm. then I did more I did more research and I said, well, wait a minute, the FDA is really focusing more on the design validation aspect of making sure clinical trials accurately represent, you know, uh, the you know, proper races of people. But I said, wait a minute, but by the time you get to design validation, the, the, the devices are already built in yeah. bias. So you're going to have anomalies, but because these are not FDA regulations um, to consider, um, you know, health equity principles, you know, if, if by the time they develop that device, they're just going to record it as an anomaly and then just and just move on. Right? So, so one second, <laughs> one thing, Lorian, though, um, why does skin tone matter for pulse oximeter? And this might sound like a very dumb question, but uh, can you help us understand why that's a big deal and why they were uh, failing in the field? Yeah, so based on the what the students, because we actually, I released a video, the press release video is right on my profile. Mm-hmm. And one of the students goes into very, very, very much technical detail. She said oximeters use infrared light um, to detect um, you know, the oxygen levels of the skin. So mm-hmm. that works good for lighter tone skins, but they need to really have different types of detection so that it will be calibrated to read ah. a, a, a wide range of skin tone. So it's not like hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have to, to spend. It's, it's just a matter of designing this up front. Right? Ah, ah, okay. Starting with, yeah. So you were saying that the, because of the different uh, pigmentation in the skin, the absorption characteristic of I, I'm a tech tech technical geek, so you know I'd, I'd love to understand the details of this, and I know many people in our audience might be wondering about that. So, do I understand it right that the pigmentation might affect the absorption, and that is why Absolutely. the re- reading might be wrong? Absolutely. Ah, okay. okay. With, uh, the forehead, the forehead temperature uh-huh. um, uh, devices, it's the same principle as well. Those. You know, I need, I even have friends that, um, in whether they're African American or Indian, any brown skin folks, they said that they had issues when they were trying to get into a place and the temperature probe misread, and they didn't have they didn't ah. have a, a virus or anything. Yeah, so that's why it's so important to build in these health equity principles from the beginning of the development process. So I I introduced principles of design planning principles and then we go into okay now you've got your design input requirements mm-hmm. it's just a simple thing of establishing equitable um, input requirements that get translated into design output specifications and requirements and then you test these during verification got you and validation so so by the time you get to validation and you've got your range of your demographic then then it'll, then you will not have the anomalies, right? Got you. Because you. you have mm-hmm. built a very 
uh, a great device that can be used on a wide range of population. And, and it's also not just skin tone. It could be also like hand hand size. Right, right. right. Women's hand size is smaller than men, but usually they're testing these things on, uh, these products on you know, white male. So that's a very limited Got you. <laughs> yeah. population. You're cutting off, cutting people at the knees that have different, um, the different needs, right? So basically what we are talking about is understanding, understanding the characteristics of our target intended population or demographic in a lot more detail than we do today. Exactly. And it doesn't have exactly. to be, it doesn't have to be on, on, uh, basis of race, but it could also be gender. It could also be, uh, you know, the local customs and the way people yeah. live, uh, practices and behaviors. I think we need to be mindful of that. That's what you were saying by uh, considering equity in our design pr- process, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that, know, I'm a, that is really I'm interesting a, to me uh, because <laughs> I think as, so I'm an engineer. As an engineer, to me, I care about what the requirements are, what the specifications are. I do my best to design the product that works on those those specifications. What I'm hearing you say is that if we don't establish the requirements up front correctly and comprehensively, we're going to miss these things. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. And if you have a good uh, DD plan, a design development plan that establishes all of this, um, that because that's really the driver um, that makes sure that we we have a thread throughout the entire development process to implement equity principles. Mm-hmm. And I also, one of my favorite parts, because I'm a quality person, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm a hardcore quality, I started out as a quality engineer and then worked my way up to leadership. Um, but the, one of the principles we, uh, we, we propose is that the quality policy statement, right? Every company, even if you're a startup and you don't have a, a fully functional quality management system, but you're starting your design development process, so you have to have at least, you know, management responsibilities uh-huh. and design, design control procedures, supplier quality. You know, you would do like a risk-based quality plan to implement your quality management system. Uh-huh. But the first thing that you establish is what is my quality policy? Because that sets the stage for your entire quality management system procedures and policies. So we propose that your quality policy should be updated to add a statement about promising that we're building our products equitably, right? And then that will also drive your quality management system to have principles in your design control SOPs and maybe some, you know, post-market monitoring uh, requirements like you know establishing KPIs for uh, equitable K- KPIs mm-hmm. to monitor mm-hmm. how that product will be doing once it's launched. Nice. So what I'm hearing you say is that drive it down from the management level through policy. And here my thought is this, and uh, l- let me know what you think. In most companies I know, people have sort of core values around diversity and equity already established. It might be that the connectivity with those core values in the quality policy is not tight. Right? That could be the case. Or maybe this is just not thought about as much. Yeah, I, I think so. That That's the key. Because um, this paper goes into very much detail just on the design development process. Mm-hmm. 
you know, for each state, how to build an equity. So we're literally giving people tools, not just a nice things to say, <laughs> yeah. but literally tools. And we provide an, a, an example of a trace, just part of a traceability matrix where we actually established uh, 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 and and this this uh, this this design input is based on this one is based on skin tone. Yeah. So we you know we walk the readers through how to create design input and establish a design output, and then oh. what were the verification and validation protocols. So I think that'll be that's a very good resource, guys. I've requested Lorian to provide a link to that uh, white paper as part of the notes of this conversation. You would have access to it. So, Lorian, I, I already see a couple of hands being raised. I'm going to start inviting people. <laughs> but I have two quick questions for you, just to set the stage. Mm-hmm. The first is, mm-hmm. uh, how do we address the concern that, hey, wouldn't it become just too cumbersome and too sort of uh, burdensome on us to think about so many different things and test so many different things? Wouldn't it add to the cost of development? How, how do we address that concern? Well, if you, if you address this up front, the cost is actually minimal, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be more cost if you just wait until design validation to de- determine. Okay, now I'm going to use, um, you know, the demographic uh, uh, population, right, or even human human factors, some of the study in the design validation stage. That that's where you you're going to lose funding if you have to address all uh, the anomalies. Yeah, right. Yep. But if you build this these principles up front. It's minimal. And even in the quality regulatory plan, where I, I recommend that we should have uh, either a health equity subject matter expert on the team, but we, we scale it, right? So for small companies, you would maybe just take your product developer and send them out and get them trained and certified, not just DEI training, but deep level equity training, mm-hmm. right? CDC has a lot of training courses and get them to be that subject, internal subject matter expert. And then if you're a medium-sized company, maybe you can hire a health equity expert Mm -hmm. that is knowledgeable on design control. That's the key. Because a lot of experts are doctors, but we need someone who's technical. And then the the wider scale is, hey, if you already have a health equity division in your organization, then they need to be trained on design control so that they could be embedded in the development team to make um, good mm-hmm. changes and updates. So, so that's, it's very economical. Yeah, and what I'm hearing you say is that if we build this as a core competence of our organization, invest in our people, drive this yeah. thought process early on, actually our overall cost to launch and cost to improve and maintain our products would be lower, not higher. Actually, a- absolutely. And you would get more people that would if it's you know over the counter, you'll have more sales, right? Nice. So hospital, it'll work. Yeah. So it's basically thinking about it in a uh, in a bigger way and developing this as a core competence. So you know, senior executive leaders and many of you are leaders in your space in our audience today. Please keep that in mind that if you treat this as a core capability of your organization, you will get better. So. I'm so excited to have so many people interested in participating today. I'm going to start inviting people here uh, to stage and open the conversation. Guys, uh, don't hold back. It takes me a while to bring you on the stage. So uh, please raise your hand if you're interested in participating in the conversation. 
I have uh, Sarah joining me now. So, Sarah, go ahead and please unmute your mic, share what you have in mind. Yes, thank you for that, Dr. Naveen. And Lorian, this is, thank you for all your valuable uh, insights and input. I wish really all that all manufacturers adopt this type of approach to, to design and development and quality policy. Um, I just have a comment, or not a comment, it's not a question either, it's just a I guess to add to the talk and conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'm well aware of the issue with pulse oximeters and I've been kind of involved in that discussion, discussion even here in Sweden. So I raised that issue towards two entities, both the Swedish um, competent authority and also at a um, regulatory summit where we had BSI, um, you know, having these lectures there. And I got the responses that I received was different. Mm -hmm. I was very surprised that the competent authority here in Sweden, the that their answer was more like, well, if they fulfill the intended purpose of the device, the intended use of the device, mm -hmm. we don't really see an issue because it fulfills the requirements in, in that way. Mm -hmm. And I was really like amazed because, not even amazed, you know, very shocked. Of yes. Because it puts the patients at risk. Yes. And, and the other one was more like, okay, the way we do it, this was the notified body, um, the aside, and the way they uh, addressed or approached that uh, topic was to have internal training and education about, um, as we're into now, e equity and, and the differences in patients, etc., cetera, um, because they are aware of the issue. Hmm. But then I, I don't understand why do they issue these certi certificates for CE mark? Why do they approve the devices where they can see that there is a problem. So, yeah, still yeah, thank, to do. Yeah, thank you for bringing this up, Sarah. What, what I'm, first of all, I'm encouraged that these conversations are happening. Second, I want all of us to understand that this requires a change in mindset and thinking, and it might take some time. So, uh, Bijan, I want to invite you now to participate. I know we're going to have a great conversation, so please go ahead and uh, share what you have in mind. Hi. Uh, this is a great point uh, that... Uh, Lorianne brought, brought up um, uh, regarding equity. Um, however, what I find is that equi equity tends to normally address race and gender, but there are many other parameters that play into choosing the proper design inputs. Mm -hmm. For example, comorbidities, culture, environment. Uh, this is a common problem with system design, where designers miss some use conditions. And uh, I think this is where good systems engineering can help. Oh, that's awesome, Bijan. Thanks uh, for sharing that. Uh, Lorian, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Because the paper, we, we use the pulse oximeter that the Cornell students uh, have built uh, as a just as a case study. But the paper clearly uh, addresses all different types of differences that need to be considered. So I would encourage you to uh, just read through the paper. Mm -hmm. It's very comprehensive. What I would add to this, uh, uh, guys, I think that it requires us to be a little bit more, have broader thinking, broader perspective, broader view. And as practitioners, uh, we might get stuck on what's written in a standard or on regulation and say, this is enough. Like Sarah, what I'm hearing you say, sometimes people might say, you know, that's what it is. But as practitioners, I think we have to go a little bit beyond. So I hope we can have that spirit in our mind as we consider these conversations. John, please go ahead. You are next. Please share what you have in mind. Uh, good morning. 
Uh, Laurieann, you and I have very similar backgrounds, so I, I really connect with what you mentioned and agree with everything that's been discussed thus far. Uh, so user needs, obviously, this is part of this discussion and is often overlooked. Characterization and initial ideation stages, that's something that, that really needs to be embedded in the processes. I agree with the, the top level uh, quality management policy and uh, mm -hmm. the, the processes for development they really need to emphasize this as well and really is part of usability engineering exactly mm -hmm. exactly it is a subset of this and really the formative usability studies would identify these kinds of things that they're done properly. exactly yep absolutely absolutely wonderful thanks for sharing that John. because we I, I, mm -hmm. yeah can i can i just comment on john yes what sarah said yes. yeah so that that the, the usability Definitely, we, we we cover all the principles that we should be that should be embedded in the human factors plan planning document, right? Under the design development plan, and also um, Sarah said something that's really a theme of our entire paper, <laughs> right? Is that we we stress there are no regulatory requirements on building equity in medical device design control. That so we're trying to get this paper. In front of the FDA, right, and even maybe the ISO standard um, bodies, to try to get them to at least issue guidance on this, and then eventually we want this to become regulation. So that's our goal. We're really going to be pushing for that because, oh. as as Sarah said, product devices that have been cleared previously are biased, and we mentioned that. And then new devices are going to be using those previously cleared devices as predicates. So the bias will be just translated from product to product to product. <laughs> yeah, so I think that effort is is awesome, Laurie, and I wish you success in that. What I would add to this is, guys, let's not wait until a regulation comes up. This is common sense. Yeah. This makes sense. This makes good sense. Let's practice. Uh, David, you are next. Go ahead. Please unmute your mic. Thank you, Lorianne. Uh, I think your message is coming across in a very powerful way. Um, I appreciate that. My question, maybe much more of a comment that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is, it seems like in general, quality takes an approach of component failure. And it seems like there's a trend, and it's very much like risk as, as well, that we need to take into account the human element and, and change our approach to account for that. Right. Comment on that? Absolutely. I mean, um, for, for example, it's so important to even consider the language, right? Is the user adequately, can they adequately read the directions? Can they adequately engage with the device? That That's one thing. Are they able to learn and adapt to a new device, right? So, it's not just the technical aspects of the product. It's human beings, the interaction and interface with human beings, as um, someone was said earlier, I think it was um, John talked about hu human use. That's critical because <laughs> mm -hmm. if we don't consider the user, then why are we even making the device? We're our, our part and whether we're quality or we're process engineers with developers, the heart and spirit why we got into this industry should be based on love and care uh -huh. for the user. That's why the cover page of our 
paper has a little heart on it. Um, you, you'll see it. Like, it. I chose that image because this is this paper was done because of love, because of care, yeah. Yeah. people. We want everyone to be well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that passion, Lorian, and it it shows in your work. I appreciate that. Uh, John, you're next. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Uh, yeah, just want to add one quick thing. Uh, so in regard to usability, if you're linking that to risk management, a use FMEA is where you're really going to find this other than the usability study itself. Uh, and often I've seen that not well implemented or not implemented at all. And really you're looking at design and process uh, as the core risk management, but use is also key. And so if that's not part of your processes, for everybody on this call and anybody else who's listening to it, you need to start looking at use FMEA or just use risk management in general. <laughs> Great point. Absolutely. Yeah, and that uh, that's a, a beautiful section on the risk management plan. And hey, if you haven't read the paper, Go ahead. Yep. you'll see. We'll do it. <laughs> so one thing I'll say, I'll say guys, is that, uh, you know, since we also talk about risk management here for everybody's uh, perspective, I would read this under intended use and reasonably foreseeable misuse requirement of 14971. If you're doing that mm. right, if you're doing that nice. right, no matter what instrument you choose, whether it's use FME or something else like John mentioned, if you are doing intended use and reasonably foreseeable misuse right, you would capture it. And then if you are doing the characteristics related to safety right, which is the next section, you would feed that into your design input. So uh, I think 14971 is written in a way which um, if you understand the linkages, uh, you can implement this very easily. Uh, guys, I don't want to go into a whole lot of discussion on that because I do want to have more conversation on this topic. Roger, I'm going to try to invite you if you can make it. Yes, go ahead, Roger, you are on. Well, I just wanted to, to chime in and say I have to admit that I never thought deeply about this, I'm shocked that a device that didn't work so good on certain categories of people made it into the marketplace. And I agree with what the others said. There's, there's no, uh, there's no reason that a company cannot get this into their, into their uh, product development process, whether it's a use FMEA or a risk assessment or usability studies. Uh, I'm anxious to read the paper to see what else is in there too kind of expand my own mind, but I'll be thinking about how companies or the companies that I'm, I work for, how we can put this into the SOPs and work instructions to constantly remind people to think about this issue. But you see, Roger, this is a, this is a benefit of our conversations, uh, learning Absolutely. from each other and becoming aware. So thank you for sharing that. Shivani, you are next. Go ahead, please uh, unmute your mic. Question to, my question to follow up with Raj, Uh, my question to follow up with Roger was that how would it be possible for us as at the student level to integrate this into the way design processes are being done today? Because I understand that there is a user uh, input that is required, but the way students think, which reminds how they would think of the use case of a particular yeah. device. So yeah, I think thank you for starts off at that level. Yeah, thank you for for your question, Shivani. Actually, I'm gonna have Lorian chime into this because you work with students, Lorian. Can you yes, can you yes. please uh, share some wisdom that you gained 
how to get students excited and trained and become aware as they go grow uh, go into the industry practice. Right. So um, the the case study that we used were, were was a device built by Cornell uh, biomedical engineering students. So um, and you know I've encouraged them to go back to their design development plan and just you know update their plan and make sure they have a nice traceability matrix. I even did a workshop with him on a traceability matrix principles. If you can get that down as a student, understanding how to trace design input requirements from an intended use statement and have have as a thread all the way through design outputs, ver, uh, verification and validation. If As a student, if you can understand that principle, that is really the heart of the design control and, and you know what, Shivani, if you are able to do that, you will be a superstar and actually, yes. actually you will advance very well in your career. So thank you for that. Uh, we are we are having a great conversation here, guys, but we've got to run against the clock. So I will take two more questions. One from Ronald. You have been waiting patiently. So go ahead, please. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, this is uh, an interesting point uh, you're making, Lorianne, about uh, um, the, the inclusion uh but um i i agree with uh, uh and david that it should be seen seen wider um i i learned when i when i graduated i graduated on building equipment or demolition equipment right and my first job was as a company and they made medical devices uh, that was in 1987 and uh so i arrived there and um the um the CEO said, oh, this is an excellent uh, moment you're arriving here because this week we'll start production of disposable needles and syringes. I mean, <laughs> nights, ladies. That, that was that. <laughs> and uh, so he, he showed me the, the prototypes. And so there were some, some syringes and some needles in different gauges. And um, I had no idea what I was looking at. I just had no idea. And, um, and then he said, well, this is um, we, we we have all these different cones in the needles. We gave them different colors, so it's easier to identify them. Just like I mean, apart from the bottles or the, or the package, you can also see the color. Oh, I said, was it difficult to make that uh, work for people who are colorblind? <laughs> and then, uh, and then yes, very unease uh, moment. And he said, uh, "Well, we're starting production on Thursday. This was a Monday." Can you fix that for <laughs> Thursday? <laughs> and um, well, a not so long story, uh, even shorter. If you walk into a hospital now and you look at the cones anywhere in the world, that was far, that was done that afternoon. Got it. So, but Ronald, I think, yeah. I think you are, you're making a good point is that we operate under a lot of constraints. And it's up to us to raise the question. So the question you raised, I'm sure, took courage, but it also informed people. So guys, uh, again, we are running against the clock. John, you have the last word in terms of the question or a comment. Please be brief. Hey, everybody. Um, so I guess, yeah, in the whole realm of notified bodies and regulators, the only current area where it stands for bias and where we're to look at those elements is development with AI and biases that accompany that. So, but there's definitely a lot of points, a lot of area that can be looked. And then one area, you know, looking at is the intended patient, your target population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So looking at that and defining what was in there and 
moving on to inputs as that plays out, as well as what about current devices that are out there that didn't have these types of uh, input parameters? What about the inclusion of within your postmarket surveillance and adding? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I think, I think yeah, that's the, the paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead. I say, I, that's excellent um, input there. Yeah, so we do talk about artificial intelligence and the bias. That's also covered because, you know, this software is a medical device that is AI ML based. So we do cover everything you said and more, John, in, in, in the paper. And the previous person that talked about colorblindness, that was an excellent example. I don't know if every, anyone is familiar with the big heparin issue that happened back in the 90s, but with the mislabeling of the color, uh, someone injected the wrong amount of heparin based on how the, the color of the labeling was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so th that's that's huge. I'm glad they that uh, that person brought out that point. So yes, AI, ML, artificial intelligence, that is addressed in the paper. That's, that's well. awesome, guys. What a wonderful conversation, guys. And I'm sure uh, we are taking away a lot of uh, take takeaway messages and I'll invite Lorian in just a moment to share one or two key points we can remember. But what I want to share with you now are a couple of just simple housekeeping announcements. First, uh, this happens every Friday at 11. So those of you who are new, 11 a.m. Eastern in the United States, come join us anytime. You don't need a formal invitation, although I will announce it on my LinkedIn feed. But we talk about all these different topics. Tell your friends. Bring them over. We want to talk to as many people and connect with as many people as possible. Second point is that the recording of our conversations will be available and the past conversations are available on the Let's Talk Risk. Now I'm going to start calling it a knowledge ladder, not a newsletter anymore. Let's Talk Risk Knowledge Ladder. Uh, please sign up. There's a link there in the event as the first comment there. So please sign up to be a part of this community and we're going to share knowledge with each one of us. And finally, and most importantly, as we have seen for from people who have shared their comments and insights in a discussion, all of you have wonderful insights and comments. I would like you to join me as a guest speaker. Uh, it doesn't take any preparation, no preparation required, very casual conversation. Just raise your hand and let me know you might be interested in joining me. We do this every week. The calendar is very flexible. With that, Lorian, I want to invite you to share some one or two key bullet points that we can take away to remember. Yeah, I would have to say I, I had a planned script before, but what I'm feeling now is I really want people who are in the medical device industry, no matter what position you have, if you are an entry level, if you're a student getting ready to go into the industry, if you've been a leader for decades, um, open up your hearts and minds and understand that you are doing the most amazing thing to me. I, I know I'm biased now on the planet. <laughs> you're in a you're in an organization that is building a product to help save people's lives or make people's lives better. So with that, you know. Institute these principles and make sure that the product that you're building will be equitable for as many people as you can, um, you know, bring under the umbrella of your of your design. So I and I really speak that from the heart, because when I realized that there was bias, it affected me personally. And this is why um, what, what has driven me to to read to to write this paper. 
And so secondly, I want to say I do have a newsletter as well um, on Substack. It's uh, Cafe, Q-A-F-E. That's all it is. If you look me up, qafe.substack.com, I will be writing a series of articles and also will be posting them on LinkedIn, breaking down each section of the of the white paper. So I'll be writing for, for quite a while. So I invite you. It's a free subscription. Just join me. Thank you, Lorianne. And what an inspiring message to leave us with. Guys, with that, thank you so much for joining today. I love the energy on this topic. I love your active participation and your willingness to share. Most importantly, your willingness to share. Please make new connections. You can reach out to anybody in this audience through direct messaging on LinkedIn. Don't spam them, but they don't have to be your first degree contact, but make new connections. Let's continue this conversation. Everybody have a good weekend ahead and thanks once again. We will connect once again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.